You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. acknowledging the peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the tra- traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today. We pay respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands where anyone is listening to a recording of this event. And in particular, I acknowledge the traditional owners of the Yarrabirrung, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, and I pay my deep respects to their elders past and present for their care of country, lands and waters and all living beings. We acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. So thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation about the Yarrabirrung as the ultimate stay destination. Before I introduce our panellists, just some housekeeping. Today's event is being recorded by the M Pavilion and will be added to their online audio library for those who weren't able to make it in person today. Accessible bathrooms are located in the Queen Victoria Gardens on Linlithgow Avenue. So today's session will start with a Q&A with our panellists and we'll then open the floor up for a discussion. So the theme of our talk today responds to the M Pavilion program theme, vacation, location, staycation. As we all know, the pandemic has forced us to forgo international holiday destinations, but there are also strong economic, social and environmental benefits in shifting to local holiday destinations. So how does Melbourne entice its citizens to stay local and vacate in their own town? And how do we make that sustainable? The Yarrabirrung has a long and storied history as a place to gather, connect and socialise. Yet over the years, people have turned away and looked further afield for adventure and relaxation. So how can we encourage people to explore their own backyard and make the most of the Yarrabirrung as this one of the city's most important features. I'll now introduce our speakers and invite each of them to talk about one unexpected local experience of joy. And we've all had them over the past couple of years um, throughout this COVID period as we've been exploring our own backyards. Now, unfortunately, as you will have noticed, this panel is not balanced in terms of gender representation which is something that the M Pavilion and Yarra Pools are committed to. But unfortunately, due to COVID-19 complications, a couple of our speakers have had to pull out at the last minute. Uh, but one of them will be joining us um, through some written responses that she has provided, and I'll introduce her a bit later. So I'll start 
by introducing myself. My name is Felicity Watson, and I'm currently the president of Yarra Pools. We're a not-for-profit collective of advocates, architects, urban planners, and more, who are advocating for a swimmable Yarra Beerarong. For the past few years, we've been advocating for something that some of you might be familiar with, which is a pool complex in Enterprise Park. Late last year, we were advised that unfortunately, the City of Melbourne is not able to commit to that project at this time um, as part of their um, work at the, on the north bank of the Yarrabirrung for the Green Line project. So in some ways, we're going back to square one, but going back to the original reason why Yarrapools um, was created in the first place, which is to advocate for the health of the Yarrabirrung and for initiatives that take us further towards this aim. So I'll start with uh, my experience of local joy, um, which was on the Yarrabirrung at the end of last year, um, which was a trip on, the go, on a go boat um, with my dad for his 70th birthday. It was a really COVID safe way of celebrating that milestone with my family and gave me an opportunity to see the Yarrabirrung from a perspective that I had never seen before. So something I would highly recommend. So I'm now going to introduce our other speakers. First, I'd like to introduce Rob Hyatt. Rob is an Aboriginal man with ties to the Lake Tyres community and the Wachabalak in Western Victoria. He has 25 years experience in government, sport and community advocating for increased cultural sensitivity in program development and delivery. And as you might be able to tell from his T-shirt, um, he works for the Koori Heritage Trust as the manager of education and visitor experience, delivering cultural awareness and competency training to government, private corporations, community organisations and the general public. And he also provides an urban cultural experience through his guided cultural walking tours along the Yarra. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Thank you. Am I on? Yep, there we go. So tell us about uh, a moment of joy in the last couple of years. Um, I did rack my brains for a while. I've only had about five minutes to think about this one, but um, <laughs> what came to mind for me was actually, it was a marketing campaign that I was involved with uh, Visa Victoria and City of Melbourne around Stay Close, Go Further. And as enjoyable as it was being thrown around the media a little bit and all the crap I copped from my friends for that, um, <laughs> the part of the experience that really stood out for me was actually in the gardens and the encouragement of actually having an elder, Arnie Joy, um, involved in that campaign. And as part of the campaign, actually for the first time for me, was actually a personal smoking ceremony that actually went through that process of welcome the country. Um, and it was actually, even though there was, you know, 30 people around and filming and all that sort of stuff, it was a, a really deep connection that Arnie Joy provided to me on country to actually have a personal welcome and smoking ceremony for cleansing. Um, it was probably really one of the most emotional welcome the countries and smoking ceremonies that I've ever done. So. That's the one that sits with me. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. Our next speaker is Matt Sykes. Matt has 
travelled the world studying bathing cultures from Japanese onsens to Danish harbour baths and fil floating filtering pools in New York. Through his consultancy regeneration projects, Matt continues to work towards a Yarrabirarung, a swimmable Yarrabirarung by 2030. In 2019, supported by the Victorian Tourism Industry Council and Peninsula Hot Springs, he proposed a vision for a 900-kilometre Great Victorian bathing trail, which will stretch along our state's southern coastline, including a Yarra pool. Matt is also involved with World Bathing Day, a global celebration of water and bathing traditions, which takes place every year on the 22nd of June. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Um, sh can you share with us a, an experience? Hello? No? Yep, yep, you're good. working? Yep, cool. Um, hi, everyone. I'd just like to take a moment to acknowledge the Birrarung, the Yarra River. Um, and uh, I guess the way that I see it through my business regeneration projects is one of my key business partners. And it might sound strange to think about a river as um, a business partner, but I guess that's, for me, the foundation of learning how we can work in partnership with the planet and to regenerate these places that we love to visit. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge those First Nations connections to this place, the Boomerang and Boonarong, as well as the Wurundjeri Wurundjeri communities and their living connections to country. Uh, so, yeah, that moment of joy for me was a moment along the Boomerang, up around Warburton. So my partner and I, Susie, we uh, took a trip uh, up in uh, the beginning of December and we had a series of moments along the river as part of that weekend. So it started off uh, near Yarra Glen and there was a series of old billabongs that had been left and they're kind of like memory marks in the landscape that you can see. Uh, so we had a picnic there and then we went further up and went to a, a beautiful spot where we had a cabin for a couple of days. Um, and then on the way uh, back, I think it was, uh, we dropped into Warburton. So I, uh, I jumped in there. It was a little, little bit chilly in, in December, but it was beautiful to jump in. There were little kids looking at me strange for jumping in the, uh, in the water. Uh, but that was just such a pleasure. And to think about what that experience could be like in the middle of uh, Nam Melbourne here is, is just a remarkable proposition. So look forward to sharing a few more stories uh, from overseas later on. Thanks, Martin. And our final speaker today is Professor Michaeli Akuto, who is the director of the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne, where he's also a professor in urban politics and the associate dean in the Faculty oh, of Architecture, <laughs> Building and Planning, where he teaches the Melbourne School of Design Studio Night. A keen researcher and practitioner of urban policy and innovation, not least after dark, he recently co-authored Managing Cities at Night and How to Build a Global City and co-hosts the Cities After Dark podcasts. He is also currently serving as a member of the City of Melbourne's Nighttime Economy Advisory Committee. Thank you, Michaeli. Uh, th th thanks and hi everyone. Uh, I guess I'll jump straight into the moment of joy. And I, yeah, I had zero preparation because immediately I, I went to 
coming back to the city of Melbourne and having a coffee. And the reason why I say that is A, I'm Italian, B, I spent pretty much the entirety of lockdown in the last 18 months of 20 months in the bush uh, outside of the city. And I guess my main memory was in, I was sort of one of the last ones out of the campus on our side of the campus, wheeling my chair with my computer and everything in, in a pretty sad moment. But I guess when I came back in reality, the first thing, I didn't go back to campus. I went back to Bayside. I used to live sort of on Bayside. I just threw myself in the water in one of the baths and looking at the city from there and go and just eff effectively remembering that Melbourne is a place on the water. I know I'm cheating and I'm using the bay and not the river, but just remember that Melbourne is water. In a way, it, it had completely gone out of my mind with 18 months of red gum trees falling onto my house, basically, and, and lots of kookaburras, but nothing to do with the water, per se. So I think the, from that perspective, the water joy was just simply sitting in the water and staring at the city and going, ah, yeah, we are a water place. I think that's um, really important to remember. And a really extraordinary thing about Melbourne is that we're a city of rivers. So the Yarra Birrarung is our, our biggest river and um, and is is certainly celebrated. But we also have the Maribyrnong, we have the Merry Creek, we have Mooney Ponds Creek. And there has been a growing movement for for decades, really, of um, interest in, in revitalising those waterways. And, and I think people through the COVID crisis um, have been very grateful to have those places to visit. And um, I think we've been very lucky to have those. Um, does anyone want to respond to that? I know Matt was... Um, practicing what he preaches in terms of regeneration on the Maribyrnong this morning, doing a clean-up. What's been your observation, Matt, about the way that people are engaging with our rivers? Oh, well, look, I, I think it's one of those things where during lockdowns uh, we had the opportunity to discover and interact with our backyards and really see them through a new light. And this morning, as Felicity was describing, each week as part of um, Regeneration Project's 1% for the Planet commitment, I'll go down to either the bay, if I'm based on in, in Mornington, so I'll go down to the bay, or if I'm down in Melbourne, I'll go uh, along the Maribyrnong River and spend an hour picking up litter. And it literally starts from the nature strip, walking out the front door and down, um, I guess, uh, an, a nature corridor. And then you pick up a little um, tributary, a little stream or drain, you could probably <laughs> describe it as, and then you get to the Maribyrnong and then it opens up. Um, and it's been really fascinating to just look at the patterns of what litter um, washes up. There's lots of masks that often come and you've got plastic bottles and you've got things from McDonald's and Hungry Jacks and needles and all kinds of things, but probably things that reflect uh, imbalances in the, our community's well-being. And so I think this time uh, we've become aware of how dependent we are, interdependent we are with our parks, our waterways, our rivers, and that being an anchor and grounding for our well-being. So I think when we start to understand that relationship, it means that um, that sense of care that we have for our waterways um, is is increased. So you just fall in love with them more, is, is what I'm noticing. And, you know, people, uh, people probably who didn't associate have, or have that connection before have found or refound that connection. But I think it's a really, really powerful outcome. Thanks, Matt. Um, and just thinking about that, that idea of connection to place and 
and awareness. Um, and coming back to the Yarra itself, the Yarra Birrung, um, I think it's it's most important to acknowledge that first and foremost, it's an Aboriginal place, a place of Aboriginal cultural heritage um, that stretches back from tens of thousands of years. Um, but not only that, but is an important place of contemporary Aboriginal culture. Rob, can you tell me a bit about the work that you do at the Koori Heritage Trust um, to to engage with the Yarra Birrung and its history? Yeah, um, a lot of the work that we do, our tours actually sit within our education section, which is how I ended up looking after it through our education programs. And so we actually use our tours to engage with people as a learning experience. And so between the learning experience and then actually the guided walks, the individual guides that we have are all Aboriginal and they all get to tell their own story and connect to place. And I think it becomes an experience of actually understanding it's a living culture because we do quite often talk about cultural heritage and we talk about the heritage stretching back, you know, tens of thousands of years. It is a living culture today as well and that culture still sits, you know, in our landscape. And I think that's one of the more important aspects of what we talk about on our tours. So when we do our tours, there's the element of understanding you are in an Aboriginal place you're in an Aboriginal environment, if you like, and it doesn't matter what that environment looks like today. We do still have some, obviously, natural features to the river today that still capture those sort of elements. We walk over to the MCG Narrow Park and you've got scar trees that are, you know, pre-contact cultural heritage just sitting there. But when we see, for example, an outer such as Arnie Joy, um, the Wurundjeri, the Boonwurrung people walking on country, it doesn't matter that they're in an urban landscape. It doesn't matter what sits on this country today. Their culture still sits within the land that they're working. And I think that's one of the most important features that we try and push because it is a little bit of a battle for us at times, especially in an urban space, that Aboriginal culture is still alive, still vibrant. Um, we talk about tourism and we kind of compete to a certain extent with what most people think is an Aboriginal experience here in Australia and quite often you're travelling to MT and you go to Uluru, you go to WA, you go to the Kimberley, maybe the Daintree, up in Queensland. We've got a lot of Aboriginal experiences right across Victoria. We've got some great product in regional Victoria, but we've got some amazing product here in Melbourne. And so part of the work that we do on our tours is as much a promotion of a living Victorian culture that's very unique um, to other experiences that you might have around the country. And... As a, um, as a product, as a tourism product, um, what you're doing at the Korea Heritage Trust, how do you find the engagement with that? What's the demand like from, for example, um, locals versus interstate versus international? Um, and is it something that's growing, the interest is growing? Yeah, it's actually, it's a growing demand um, in, a, in a few ways. I think from a local perspective, it's not just our tours, but the Koori Heritage Trust has a dedicated Aboriginal run and owned cultural centre. Um, we get a lot of regular visitors, if you like. And so part of our, um, I guess, mandate, if you like, as a Victorian organisation, is that we preserve and protect the unique culture of Aboriginal Victoria, but we also provide an opportunity for the general public to engage in that through our galleries, through our collections, 
we have the um, art shows in our galleries that turn over every three months. So from a local perspective, we get a lot of regulars and a lot of great support from our local communities, which is great from that perspective of understanding you can engage with our culture and you can do that in fun ways. That Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal people aren't just about issues and politics, but expressing their culture in so many amazing ways today. We start getting a little bit of in, um, interstate visitation, which is great. And we connect with other, you know, other things around Melbourne. So Melbourne being the sports capital of the world, which we all love, and we have major events. So we quite often get a lot of internet, oh, sorry, interstate visitors coming through and engaging. And I, I guess one of the things that sort of blows them away is the fact that you can come to Melbourne and actually have an Aboriginal experience while you're visiting Melbourne more broadly. And everything that Melbourne has to offer as a city is quite amazing, but we're a part of that. And I think that's really important. And then the final step is international. We started to grow. <laughs> um, if I go back to the start of 2020, we actually became a Discover Aboriginal Experience as a um, signature experience for Tourism Australia. And we got that membership about a month before lockdown. So unfortunately, we haven't been able to use that to a certain extent. But what people don't realise is three product in Victoria that are Discover Aboriginal Experiences as signature Aboriginal Experiences. And we're one. And the other one that I'd like to point out is actually the, the Heritage Walk and the Bush Walk through the Royal Botanic Gardens. So two of our actual signature Tourism Australia businesses, or Aboriginal product, if you like, are actually Melbourne-based. And I think that's really important. And that marketing that we're now getting into the international space is actually changing people's thinking about what sort of experiences you can have, not just in Australia from an Aboriginal perspective, but also in Melbourne from an Aboriginal perspective as well. And what we're finding with our international visitors prior to COVID, obviously, was a real interest. Firstly, they're blown away a little bit by the fact that they can have that experience. But then secondly, they get an opportunity for a story. And one of the things we encourage with all of our guides is that they're happy to talk about their own personal story. And what we find from a lot of international visitors is that they're not just interested in for want of a better way of saying it, the performance, if you like, from a cultural perspective, but actually what happened in Australia. What's the story we can learn from Australia and what has happened to Aboriginal people? And so it's starting to change their thinking that, yes, our culture is still alive, but we still battle, you know, stereotypes and those kind of things. We've had an international visitor walk in and ask, where are the real Aborigines? And one of my staff sitting at the front counter, who is an Aboriginal man, actually said, well, I'm Aboriginal. And she actually said, no, you know, the ones in the outback are still in the caves. <laughs> and so we're still having that battle. We have our own unique culture. I've had someone complain that they didn't see any Aboriginal art while visiting the trust, even though that's what we promote, because they want to see dots on absolutely everything. And so part of the work that we do is changing people's thinking about how you actually view Aboriginal Australia, Aboriginal Victoria and Aboriginal Melbourne. And the fact that culture is still alive, vibrant and strong today is probably one of the main things we push as the Career Heritage Trust. Fantastic. Well, I certainly recommend that everyone checks out that, that walk and the, the program at the Royal Botanic Gardens. You can learn so much um, about, you know, the place that you live that you never, never learned before. Um, I think that it's really important um, for this engagement with Aboriginal peoples and cultural heritage um, to happen 
throughout the the planning process for tourism. And I'm interested, Matt, in um, the way that this has informed your work as a non-Aboriginal um, person, uh, because I know that in Aboriginal engagement has been a really integral part of the work that you do. Um, what have you learnt um, as part of that process and, and how can we engage respectfully? Yeah, that's a small question there, Felicity. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, to listen is probably the main one. To actually take that time to stop and to listen and to not just listen and hear with your ears but to really sit with what's being shared. Um, uh, something that comes to mind uh, uh, just after New Year's Eve I had an experience walking through at the middle of uh, the CBD here and uh, to, p to uh, pick up on some of Rob co Rob's comments around those stereotypes. So often people think of those First Nations experiences being somewhere out, you know, in a remote area and, you know, there's certain images and stories and things that, that come to mind there. But one of the most powerful experiences that I had was actually um, looking at some artworks by a young First Nations artist, Jara Carolina Steele as part of Flash Forward Melbourne. And she's done a series of these beautiful artworks that have got words, some in English, some in language. Uh, and one of them is, you are on country. You are on country. We are on country. That idea that country isn't just, you know, you become on country when you travel 300 kilometres that way or 500 kilometres that way, but they were on country. Like, for me, that was just like, wow, it just hits you, you know? Um, but I love the way that Melbourne is cultivating that kind of First Nations tourism experience, whereas you're not going to find that in Tasmania, you're not going to find that in the desert, you know, you know, it's its own unique thing. So one of the experiences that I had uh, actually when I was studying landscape architecture at, at Melbourne Uni was to go up and do a walk with the Galarabaloo community uh, along the Lurajari Trail north of Broome. And so that was nine days along the coastline and it was an incredible experience because you were, you were there in the community walking country and you were seeing the way that they were relating to it, the stories that they shared around it, and also the, the real issues that, that they're experiencing at a time, whether it was um, the gas plant proposed for James Price Point. Um, but that, for me, made a mark. And a couple of months later, I went up and did the um, experience, the Gama Festival, hosted by the Yonu community in Arnhem Land. And again, you feel like you're discovering another part of your identity as an Australian person by being in this place. But it was down in uh, Tasmania, Luchawita, um, with the Palawa community and supporting the, um, the community there with the Wukalina Walk, which is a four-day cultural experience up around the Bay of Fires um, or the Larapuna. That, for me, was a really powerful one. And, it, and you showed the potential, and I hope this, this is kind of where we're going to steer soon, um, is into that, that opportunity for tourism and travel to be a, a process of rekindling and cultural regeneration. And that the culture uh, evolves and caring for country to caring for the Birurung and the, and the Yarra's ecological regeneration, in parallel to that, you also have cultural regeneration. And the two talk to each other. Um, and that's what I saw down there. You've, you know, you've got this incredible place, but you have these little, you know, dome uh, huts that were inspired by the traditional architecture of the old people, um, positioned within the landscape. They look amazing on Instagram. Um, but it's actually much more than that. It's actually about 
this community being able to access country again after being after having experienced one of the most devastating near genocides or close to genocides um, that it, that's been on our you know on been on our planet and it's raw and it's tough and it's real but we've got to be able to go there because it's out of that that you start to grow those new relationships and those new stories but we've got to be honest first um, and so that, that experience of listening, being open to that honesty, but then also sharing that space of, hey, we've got this common care for country and our planet, now is the moment to, to act. Um, it's for me the elder, that time with elders that has been the, some of the most foundational in my learning process. Thanks, Matt. And um, talking about the idea of cultural regeneration, um, it's also something that we wanted to discuss is environmental regeneration as well. And, um, you know, the, the proposition of increasing tourism along a place like the Yarra Birrung um, could potentially inflict more pressure on an already extensively human-impacted environment. So I'm interested to think about how can the presence of tourism and, and bringing people to this place actively improve the environment. Okay. So uh, I'll, just, I'll just cover a little bit of a, a 101 of, of how the, I understand regenerative tourism and the way that that might be different from a current tourism or a sustainable tourism. So generally, um, like many forms of business, tourism uh, can be set up in a relationship with a place as an extractive one. So it basically means that we take more than we give back. Um, sustainable tourism sets up a relationship where you take less, uh, but regenerative tourism is about giving back more than you take, leaving a place better than what you found it. So these are principles, you know, when you're, you're growing up as a, a kid and your mum's always telling you to look after your, um, you know, your bedroom and, and, and whatnot. These are principles that we can all relate to, but the way that our economic system is set up is that we end up taking away and what you end up with is, is this ecological sorry, degeneration process. So to flip it on its head, and I'll do it by an example. Um, so back in 2017, I was visiting Oslo in, in Norway and uh, some friends of mine run a food experience there. So we took a walk down the Akaselva River uh, and uh, they were foraging along the way. Um, there was a number of little stops and storytelling points that we had. But then at the end of it, we got to a place called La Seta, which is an urban farm, similar to Ceres, I guess you could say. And uh, a beautiful spot, so that it's planned for some kind of housing development. In terms of position, it's probably closer to where Docklands is, that type of atmosphere, although they're approaching it in a slightly different way. Um, but at the end of it, it got to, we had this beautiful um, dinner. We went past... Uh, I forgot the name of the restaurant now, but it's the equivalent of Noma in Copenhagen, so a beautiful restaurant. The chef there walked out onto the, um, out of the front door and he had these mushrooms that were literally bigger than a basketball. We ended up cooking up these you know, beautiful food, having this meal, and then it was about 10 p.m. at night. Uh, and it, similar to now, but a little bit more daylight hours for us in terms of temperature, and they're like, would you like to go to the sauna or the sauna? I'm like, sure, it's like 10 o'clock at night, but then we're in the middle of the city. So half an hour later, I was stepping out of a floating sauna opposite their opera house, about to jump into their harbour. And that would be the equivalent of doing that across from the art centre here along the Birrarung. So where Arbury Afloat is with its pool, um, 
you were actually by the water and you were having that experience. And the way that that started was you had this pirate sauna, these activists that came in and said, we're going to claim back our river and as a public space. And so they had this intervention and then that start, started this process where the city, city got behind the care of the Akaselva, the mainstream flowing into it, so like the Merry Creek here. Uh, and then that started this whole regeneration process. And now when you visit there, you've got over, um, you know, half a dozen saunas and a, a one large sauna that's probably as big as this space, but you can fit about 100 people in it. And so what you ended up with is this community wellbeing, you know, environment, um, this ecological regeneration, and also tourism as the driver, as the economic driver of that. And so all along their waterfront, you have these spots, similar to Copenhagen, but that's another story. Well, I'm putting that on the itinerary for my next trip. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Uh, Michaeli, can you maybe talk about um, some other examples of this? I think internationally, when we look at um, examples of successful bathing cultures in other countries, a lot of them have just sort of generated out of these grassroots movements to reclaim rivers and harbours as kind of public civic spaces. Can you talk about um, any of your observations overseas? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll play the game of uh, just telling you a few other places besides Melbourne, but I think it's at Matt's bang on the money there, and we were just chatting before exactly about that. Uh, just for context, I sort of I studied my bachelor uh, in, in Oslo, in Norway, and that was such a normal activity too. So alien to an Italian or someone that doesn't live on the river, I guess, or that doesn't live on a waterfront. And I think that what strikes me of that, and it's very similar to the example continuously cited because it sort of feels a bit like the gold standard of bathing cultures, which fundamentally Switzerland, uh, insofar as places like Basel and Zurich and Geneva, they have it built in their DNA. People uh, have these sort of bizarre bags, uh, Ziploc bags fundamentally, that they use as backpacks uh, and they pack all their clothes and all their valuables in, they're watertight and they throw themselves in the river and they go down the river to go to places. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful experience. It's extremely alien if you don't have that relationship with the river. But I think what that says, um, and it's very similar to what's happening at the moment in, in Brussels as well, they have a whole thing called pool is cool uh, to, to, to do the same type of advocacy in a sense that you're doing, is it isn't just a touristy gimmick. It's about building the river and the waterways, and I like the expression waterways rather than just river. It's building that into the habit of a place. Um, so a Swiss person from Basel would just find it so obvious to talk about throwing yourself in the river, going down 30 minutes uh, or 15 minutes, stepping out into a cafe, having a drink, uh, and then getting back. And almost the annoyance of having to get back on foot because you can't quite get back against the river in a sense. Uh, but I guess what's critical there is that some of the best examples are the examples that have, yes, the tourism element, but actually have the habit uh, of the waterway being on the front yard. And something that happens of, I now live close to Mary Creek, so serious as an, as, an, as an example. People have started thinking of the waterways as um, as on the front yard, I guess, not on the backyard. You Matt said to me before in Felicity, we turn our backs to the rivers. The idea that these are areas that we use, most of the planning, and you're perfectly on point, does the urban layout matter or not? It, it, it actually matters insofar as we build cities centered on roads and 
uh, and, and squares, and to some extent some parks, but we rarely think, and this is something that limited understanding, but I gather that's pretty obvious country knowledge, that the waterways are a central part of it. Uh, and in fact, they're a way, they're waterway, they're not just uh, something that flows in the back uh, of our houses. And I guess people have started using more uh, and com considering these sort of things more central. But if you go to the examples of Switzerland, the examples of uh, what they're trying to do in Belgium, Scandinavian countries for sure, they are central part of the urban layout of a place. And you use them as centrally as you would use, uh, uh, sure, they were pirate sonas, but it was sort of always in their DNA to throw themselves in freezing cold fjords uh, or freezing cold strain down, down, uh, down Basel because it's just part of the DNA of that place. So I guess it's just a matter of rebuilding the DNA of the attachment to the river. Uh, and so that, that's why I'm pointing at Brussels, because for instance, Brussels with pool is cool, is not just advocating to get back onto the river with pool-like uh, infrastructure like we're talking about here. They're doing it across the city and it's about educating kids um, to swim, swim early and learn to swim to save your lives fundamentally. That's a very well ingrained in Australian culture, so that's a good starting point. It, it's a movement towards swimming. It isn't just about uh, we need to build a specific pool in a specific bit of the yard. Thank you. I think that's really interesting. And, and I think one of the big barriers that we face in our advocacy is the um, the lack of connection that people have between swimming and the Birrarung um, in, you know, in the city. Like, it's just not something that people think about, that they want to do. Um, it's just not something that is part of our DNA. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a, a work in progress. Um, I'd like to talk about the river as a creative catalyst now, and we've already talked about it as a, you know, a cultural entity and a place of living culture. Um, but we're going to hear now from um, one of our speakers who wasn't able to make it um, in person today, um, but I'll just read out her bio, and if you can bear with me, um, I'll read um, some responses that she has provided us, um, some insights into her work, and then I'll, I'll ask the other speakers to respond. Dr. Amanda Roth is a musician and creative research scholar living on the traditional lands of the Tungurung in Ngambi, central Victoria, and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Nam. Her career is founded on the collective power of art and music in community. From a background in DIY punk and youth theatre, she has, sorry, dedicated dedicated the last 20 years to making and supporting independent music as an ethos and a creative space. Her PhD used poetic investigation to explore the metaphysical aspects of sound and music using Greek mythology. Now, Amanda was part of um, a great creative project that engaged with the Birrarung last year, which unfortunately was cut short due to COVID, which was the Rising Festival. Um, some of you might have seen the light installations 
um, around the city, which were incredible and invited people to come and experience the city in a different way and particularly at night. So I wanted to ask Amanda a little bit about her work as part of the festival. Um, and I think it's really fascinating. So, so I'll just, I'll read this out. So Amanda's work was called Flow State. And Amanda has provided um, the following insights into this work. I was a consulting artist and creative researcher on the project Flow State for Rising Festival 2021, a nighttime sound and bathing experience situated on and around Herring Island, which is just along the Yarrabirrung there. The lead artist, Sarah Retallick, and I spent about a year engaging with the spot. The island is man-made, the remnant of a plan to protect Richmond and Abbotsford from flooding. In 1928, a channel was cut through a promontory of land in order to contain the river as it swelled in flood. But it didn't work, and the newly created island was washed away completely. When dredging of the river commenced, silt was piled up on the stump of the island, and the land was reclaimed. But the silt was salty and aquaphobic which meant nothing but the odd weed could grow there. Soil was transported to the island and vegetation built up over time. The freeway was built over the old quarry opposite the island. Vaguely triangular in shape, it has major roads on two sides and a park on the other. On the island, one has the sense of being away from the city and in the middle of it at the same time. We spent time on the island making recordings of it photographing it and reading about it, canoeing around it, viewing it from various points, writing about it and dreaming about it. While I got to know the island and spent peaceful hours there, I could not shake the strangeness of the place. It was created by a kind of wound, a severing effect, a destruction and reclamation. The initial rebuilding of the island made it impossible for plants to grow there, which reminded me of the ancient practice of salting battlegrounds in ancient Rome and around the Aegean to pre prevent vanquished cities from ever rebuilding. Even the care that had been taken to revegetate the island and furnish it with regular soil seemed to be a struggle against salt, weeds, feral species and pollution. It made me think about the ways we try to control land, about the fantasy of control and the tendency to exclusion, which is especially engendered by islands as they are bordered by water, like a castle is bordered by a moat. I tried to express these, design, these ideas in the design of the production. The costumes and performers who facilitated the bathing experience made it clear that the audience were visiting a site of environmental trauma. Neon signs, head torches and hazmat suits gave the experience of a very industrial accident feel. However, the midnight ferry ride to the jetty, the walk through the dark bush and the eventual bath itself, while they were mildly unsettling, were also very beautiful, very pleasurable and transported the audience to a place that was both very real to the senses, but also dreamlike. To be naked in a bath in the middle of the night on an island in the middle of the city 
seeing, hearing and smelling bats, birds and beasts unknown is an exciting prospect, one that was designed to make an audience member hyper-aware and reflective. The work turned on the tension between the brutality of the colonial land practices that created the island and the inherent pleasure of bathing and the indomitable beauty of Birrarung itself. The work created space to process the complexity of the space. I think that's really incredible um, to hear how all of those ideas were reflected in that work and it's such a shame that it wasn't able to go ahead as planned. Um, but I think it provides some really interesting insights into how we can create new work and activations around the Birrarung that engage with its sense of place and sense of history. Michaeli, I was wondering if you could talk about um, Melbourne's nighttime economy and, you know, whether the, the Birrarung has an important role in that or whether it's something that we um, can enhance. Yeah, and, and obviously rhetorical question is in, I, I do think it does. Uh, and so for, for everyone's sake, it, we, the, the phrase nighttime economy might just bubble up in your mind's ideas of bars and clubs and nightclubs. Uh, the night, when we talk about the nighttime economy, we really talk about, first of all, billions and billions worth of money and tens of thousands of people worth of just jobs that, that do things at night. I mean, it isn't just, it is important to think about the bars and the clubs and Arborea Float, for instance, uh, as an example, but uh, it is also the things that happen at the twilight, for instance, it's uh, that zone between people clocking off of work uh, and doing something before the night descends, uh, which sounds very bourgeois, but actually it's sort of critical for families, for instance. I've got three kids and the, the little ones certainly are not going to stay out at 2 a.m. In a, in a club, but they might partake in the nighttime economy in that sort of twilight zone. Uh, and equally, it's critical for the functionality of a city, for the rege daily regeneration of a city. The three largest, uh, or at least the two largest jobs uh, for the nighttime economy are nurses and healthcare that keep on working at night and keep us healthy, uh, and people cleaning and, and maintaining, so garbos and, uh, and, and truck drivers and, and people fixing things. So I guess the point being that nighttime economy isn't just about going out onto the river, uh, it's considering where waterways play a role in the continuation of the city, in giving options, in fact, beyond the, the bar and the club into other forms of entertainment, other forms of socialization for people um, and open. Um, spaces, which has become so critical because continuously the enclosed spaces of the nighttime economy have been challenged and challenging uh, even with the current situation and the current outbreaks. So in a sense, thinking what we can do out onto the waterways becomes critical. The flip side of that is we often talk about the nighttime economy as a thing for people. Uh, and again, knowledge of country would tell us that that's fundamentally wrong and that, for instance, uh, flooding Mary Creek with floodlights uh, to make it a nighttime economy venue would be disastrous for the flora and the fauna that lives there. Uh, and that it is critical for the health of our place uh, in itself. So in a sense, the nighttime economy often thinks about party goers and uh, not crickets uh, or, 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 or possums uh, uh, trying to quietly having sex somewhere on a, on, on a tree. So fundamentally, we need to think about the nighttime economy as sort of 
cri critical to the regeneration of our city as well, not just a source of money. Um, and there we can be particularly creative on it. And I think the good part, there's good examples of uh, um, what Bristol has done in the UK to revitalize pretty dire condition of the waterways, uh, playing and using the idea of experimental uh, creative play for people to go and test out those places. Uh, again, we there's a step between uh, what we don't have and the green line or what we don't have in a fully functioning pool, which is uh, temporary uh, artistic installation or temporary play spaces where we can try out these sort of things. So I think there there's, there's a lot to do and there's a lot also that allows us to more carefully play with the nighttime element of the waterways that doesn't just simply colonize the space for the benefit of the humans versus the fish and, uh, and, and, and the animals. Thank you. So now I will open up to the floor for questions. We're just getting a microphone set up, um, so have a think about any questions you might have for our speakers or any comments that you might have to contribute to the discussion. Okay, so we have a mic set up at the back there. Is there anyone who would like to contribute something? Great, could you just go and stand at the mic? Yeah. <laughs> um, hi, thanks for your ideas and sharing um, and vulnerability all the things. Um, it seems like you guys are dancing around this idea of environment as another um, and potentially that's a European idea, um, but it hasn't explicitly been spoken about, I don't think, I'll just throw it out there. Sure, is that someone, did someone want to respond to that? What was the, what was the question in particular? Um, Rob, I don't think it was in particular, it was more just a, something that's in my brain and it's been um, provoked by you, so take that as a compliment, I guess. Um, but I think with your ideas around regenerative um, environment, regenerative culture, we're basically regenerating against my history, which is some um, pretty brutal European sort of ignorance. Um, and I think it's pretty impressive that we were able to establish this on the other side of the world. But it's also very impressive that the environment before we got here and the culture before my, my history got here didn't need all the stuff that has caused the problems that we're now regenerating. So this is why I kept it. Anyway, try and get out. I wonder if, so in my mind, I'm trying to figure out how to re-understand myself as part of the environment rather as separate to it. So that's my question, is how... I don't think you've actually spoken to it, but you've totally spoken to it. And I just wondered if that was intentional or I'm not sure. Um, from my own point of view, like, like I have my own opinions and my own views and, you know, living in this world as an individual as well. And so I think it's all for all of us on how we have our own connections to whatever it might be. Um, whether it's a connection to country, a connection to culture, um, religious connection, faith, whatever it might be that drives your values and the person that you are. And for me, I think it's really important that we do understand our own values 
and how that impacts on how we do view the world, how we view the environment, but understanding that we all bring all these different values. And so I sort of go back a little bit what Matt said earlier about working with Aboriginal people, for example. It's as much about listening as anything else because we've had a long history of engagement, consultation and all of those kind of things. And Aboriginal people will often say they're the most over-consulted people in the world and they're kind of tired of it. But the tiredness actually comes from feeling like you never actually listened to. And that's the hardest part. So for me, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but if we go back to that regenerative side of things, the Heron Island project to me, from an Aboriginal perspective, is really interesting that we're regenerating something that was actually man-made. Something that actually wasn't there and we're regenerating this thing that actually wasn't there. So for me, when we talk about economy and those sort of things, from an Aboriginal perspective, economy is not just money. Economy is the economy of knowledge that we share, and it actually is a circular economy for Aboriginal people, that it, it's a sharing of knowledge, and it's also then an economy of culture. And so, as individuals, it's about how, you know, you and I might connect, and what are the conversations we can actually have. And I think part of that has to be that we're open and honest about our own values, what we're looking for, and then where do our values possibly inter intersect from that point of view. I would love to say that we could take the city back to what it was. You know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, that we can make the, the river look like the way it was. We took out one of the most natural filtration systems out of the river when the waterfall was blowing up down at Queen Street Bridge, and the river changed forevermore. Early settlement, I was going to say photos, but that's not true, paintings of the river, it was blue. It was crystal blue, and from Aboriginal knowledge, you could see the bottom. And so, I know it's great regenerating Heron Island from an economic point of view, if you like, but to understand that having the story that Heron Island didn't exist, why does it exist now? There's a lot more to the economy of what the money might generate as a tourism destination, understanding there actually is a history to that island that actually is not so good. And I think that's important. We've got to take in the good and the bad of our history. And why are we regenerating this river now? Because we had settlement. And settlement, in the, in the time of settlement, didn't like the fact that it was a flooding river. They couldn't sustain a settlement on the bogs, lagoons and marshes that this entire area was. So it changed. And I think having an understanding of why it changed, what that impact was, but then this integration of Aboriginal voice today and the values of Aboriginal people, but Aboriginal people are happy to share that, those values, happy to share those cultures, and they don't have to be separate. So I think it's about how we would actually come together in a broader conversation overall. I hope that makes sense. It's, um, it's such an easy one to go around in circles on. Um, I think our biggest problem is we don't always have the opportunity all the time to sit down and just talk. Maybe it's for hours on end. It doesn't have to be documented in any way, but it's just how do we come together as an understanding? Yeah, you've got to get up. <laughs> and run. <laughs> Hello. Um, a few of us here are part of a, a swimming group. We've started swimming at Deep Rock at the Yarra every single morning since August. And um, it... It's commonly on my mind, and I think a lot of our other swimmers, is how do we approach our, our group and our swimming in a way that's respectful to country and to our Indigenous people? 
It's a vegan. It sounds like it. <laughs> um, I think it's an understanding that Aboriginal people are not so scary. Aboriginal people are not so separate to our modern world that you can't approach a person and ask a question. That's the most basic, simplest thing. Um, I think we quite often have a fear of difference and we almost feel like we're meeting that person's background or their difference first and we actually forget to meet the person. So if you ever meet any one of our elders, they would sit down and talk to you and you can ask whatever question comes to mind. I think the, the hardest thing is dealing with the unasked questions. And it's quite often, why didn't you ask that question? And that's where people start to feel, well, there must be a problem in your thinking if you're not prepared to ask that question. So for me, respectful is just, be you. Well, from an Aboriginal perspective, understand its story and sit down with the elders and understand its story. Its story in creation is important and that's a cultural significance, but then it's important in what it actually gave in terms of the people, the life, the animals, the whole ecology of the area. Um, and where is that sustainable now? And what's that look like now? It can be really important. And I think you guys could talk to that a little bit too. Yeah, I think there's something that comes to mind that probably bridges both of those questions. Something um, we do some short courses and events with people that are kind of curious and learning about regeneration. And I guess one of the starting points is always understanding that uh, the regeneration outside is also inside. And one of the exercises that we do is actually invite people to go back into their own ancestry, because this has been one of the learnings from my experiences with First Nations elders. Um, and there was a, an event where an, an elder um, from the Iroquois community uh, around Montreal in, in Canada said, now, now Matt, here I am like listening and, and learning in this kind of reciprocal knowledge exchange that Rob's talking about. But she said, now Matt, I expect you to find out who your, your tribe was. I expect you to find out who your story was in your country. And so when we take that on, like that point where we have the, in our narrative in Melbourne and as a colonial country, we have this narrative when we came here, well, before there was a time, we came from a place. And so when we trace that place, and this is what we get people to do, is to actually map out their life as a constellation and think about when you go back through your ancestry to when your, your um, you know, relatives were connecting with the waterway and what was their relationship with, with that waterway. So Sykes, the name Sykes comes from Yorkshire in England. Um, and so if I go back, then that becomes the Brigantes people of Celtic Britain. And the specific place around Carlisle, where this name is apparently originating, it's from this kind of swampy marshland. Now, if you look at the old maps, then this marshland and this wetland literally would have started, you know, it would have been around here. We would have been looking over water. So then that sets up my relationship. How do I care with this place? Well, I can kind of redirect and go back up through my ancestry to the way that they were relating to that, those waterways. And then that makes me relate differently here. So I can't become a First Nations person of this place, but I can go through that way. And I think, you know, you, you can have, 
you know, you can have rules about how do you, you know, leave no trace and these types of things and avoiding erosion and um, mindful of habitat of platypus and these types of things, which should all factor in and that cultural aspect of it as well. But I think they're all kind of secondary. It's like you need to go upstream and then when you find your own source and that connection with water, then those things kind of get answered because of your own curiosity to learn. Um, but often we just stop at the surface and we stay in this intellectual space and we forget, oh, so we've got to regenerate ourselves as well. Like, that's where it's happening. And it's happening now. Like, across the road, if you step past that wall of music and, and dance over there, there's a, a pink pond and people are paddling away in a, a water. And it's like, for me, it's like that's just a sign that we're one step closer to doing the same thing in the Birrung. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if... It's just another perspective. Thank you. Oh, Michaeli? Oh, no, I was just going to add, I think one, one lesson there is also the listening, not critical listening to the elders and listening to the tradition, but not forgetting the one of the First Nations lessons is listening to the nature itself, uh, which sounds sort of very, oh, I'm listening to a frog. Well, there, there is people, uh, my colleague Teresa Jones listens to crickets and they can't scream, but they actually do scream because we flood them with very bright lights and they can't do certain things. Uh, you jump into the water at a certain point, uh, there are experts and there are people that can guide you through the, the impact, natural impact uh, of that, and maybe jumping five meters downstream or 10 meters upstream doesn't disrupt uh, a breeding ground, right? So in a sense, the listening there to the nature as well, because then otherwise we're still, in a European sense, very centered on to listen to people rather than just as, as First Nations tell us, uh, listening to the environment around us. Uh, and there are questions that are being asked. It's just simply often we don't, uh, my colleague Judy Bush has been doing this for 20 years on Mary Creek. It's just a matter of asking who's asking those questions and who's listening, not just to the people, but to the stuff around us. Thank you. Well, I think we'll probably end our conversation there. I think that's the perfect place to end it. Um, please thank our panelists for today. Thank you so much for your generous uh, knowledge and wisdom and sharing that with us. And thank you to all of you for coming. Thank you to the M Pavilion for having us. We've got some um, fabulous people in the audience and I just want to acknowledge some of the other champions for the Yarra Birrung that we have with us today. Karen Traeger from the Yarra Riverkeepers Association and one of the founders of Yarra Pools, Matt Stewart. Thank you for coming today, Matt. Uh, and Janet Belatho a documenter of Port Melbourne, um, another um, wonderful Melbourne person to get to know. Um, thank you all for coming today. We really appreciate it and hope you enjoy the rest of this beautiful afternoon. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.